church. Uh, today's scripture reading in the Old Testament is from Zephaniah 3.20. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And our New Testament reading is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Adam. Well, new year, new season, and new sermon series. And I can think of no better way to begin this year than for us to spend some time in the book of Acts. In this, we will be looking at a book that uh, largely has uh, been reduced in the church, either to um, either a book primarily about evangelism or missions, or a book primarily about the church and the theology of the church, what we call the ecclesiology of the church. And those are certainly very important themes uh, throughout the book of Acts, but, but to reduce the book of Acts to just those two categories would miss a great deal of why we as a church should dive a little bit deeper into this often neglected book of Scripture. Uh, we find some of the richest teachings of the Holy Spirit here in Acts. Uh, we find what church leadership is and, and what they do. We find battles against injustice and care for the exploited and the marginalized. We find striking teachings against nationalism and ethnocentrism. Uh, we find a gospel for all nations in every facet that come out in meaningful, tangible, expressed ways. And so we find in the book of Acts how God redeems people seemingly that were far beyond redemption, and it points us ultimately to the glory of God across the earth. But perhaps if we were to choose just one controlling theme throughout the book of Acts, it would simply be this, uh, God's kingdom expanding to the ends of the earth. And this we find a gospel that is big enough for, to be a gospel of word and of deed, uh, a gospel that handles justice and mercy, a gospel that focuses with, on those within the church and those outside of the church. You see, God's kingdom works out in Acts more than just an either-or dichotomy that we often set up in our lives. Rather, God's kingdom is a both-and, and challenges the church of today to think through, as a Holy Spirit-filled people, what it means to build God's kingdom. So join me in prayer before we dive into this introduction of these first eight verses. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, reveal your word clearly today through the power of the Spirit, to see Christ, to be his witness, 
and to see your kingdom come in Columbia, in Howard County, in our present-day Samarias, and to the ends of the earth. And use the preaching of your word to encourage us now. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, the, the book of Acts is really like a great sequel to a great movie. It expands on the themes and builds the story into something that makes the first story even greater than the first. Think Empire Strikes Back, Paddington 2, right? great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it, right? The Dark Knight, right? all these sequels building upon great stories and adding greater depth and leave you for wanting more. Acts is a sequel, uh, many of us might not realize this, to the book of Luke. Really, these two books are, are two scrolls that should be read like chapter 1 and chapter 2 of a story. The writer is Luke, the physician, who accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. And he documented, like a great historian, the names, dates, places in expanded detail. Uh, this is, in other words, basically a story of Jesus, chapter 1 in Luke, right? and the story of the church and spreading his kingdom to the world. Right? So these are, think of like Lord of the Rings expanded editions. Luke's gospel and Acts are those. They're, they're, they're significant portions of your New Testament. And in doing so, Luke is trying to give the reader, uh, a man by the name of Theophilus, a full account of what Jesus and his disciples did so that Theophilus might be convinced of who Jesus is and what his people have been called to do. But what is interesting is that Luke isn't just satisfied about telling the story of Jesus and stopping it there. Right? And this is what the book of Acts is about. Right? In fact, while the disciples evangelize and certainly make Jesus the center of all that they teach and proclaim, the person of Jesus is faintly present in the book of Acts. In other words, in Luke's grand story, chapter 1 and chapter 2, Luke and Acts, he wants to tell his readers about the importance of the gospel. It doesn't just end at the resurrection and the ascension. As many, oftentimes, our gospel presentations stop. Luke's gospel presentation presses forward and asks the question of what do his disciples do? What do his disciples do? What does it mean to be a spirit-filled disciple of Christ? What happens after Jesus' earthly ministry is done? So today we're going to talk about three aspects of the introduction to the book of Acts and really kind of lays the foundation for the rest of the book. Um, and specifically about the disciples. Three things. One, uh, what the disciples of Christ possess. Two, what disciples of Christ proclaim. And three, what disciples of Christ pursue. What do they possess? What do they proclaim? And what do they pursue? So let's first dive into what the disciples of Christ possess. Uh, if you look back on Luke 24 in your Bibles, um, at the very end of the first book, you know, the end of the first movie, the cliffhanger that Luke leaves us with is that Jesus takes his disciples to the upper room and begins to teach them all that the scripture says concerning himself. And then after this, he ascends up to heaven. And so the book of Acts picks up uh, where that story left off and adds more detail to the narrative, recapping what happened, but now adding this layer that Jesus was really speaking about what the scriptures were talking about. And that's the kingdom of God. 
In other words, Jesus wasn't just teaching them scripture concerning himself just for himself's sake. He was showing how those scriptures spoke about him in such a way that God's kingdom would unfold just like the grand narrative of scripture said that it would. And so Jesus confirms that this kingdom of God that was promised from the Old Testament, a kingdom that would be a blessing to the nations in the book of Genesis, a kingdom that would have no end, promised in 2 Samuel. The promised restoration of the kingdom of God, where there would be peace on every side from the prophets, and that there would be eternal rest for the people of God. Jesus starts talking about this to his disciples and tells them this bombshell. Uh, they will possess and receive the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The force of this, the magnitude of what it means to receive the Holy Spirit, to possess the Holy Spirit, cannot be understated, especially if you were as well-versed with Scripture as the disciples were. The Spirit of the Lord was the ultimate secret weapon. It's the card once played dominates all other cards. It's the draw four card in Uno. Right? It's Gandalf the White coming in on a white horse. It's Jackie Chan, he drinks the elixir, and he's surrounded by a hundred battlers, but you know, for some weird reason, only one at a time is going to attack him, and he's going to win, right? And you know it's game over, right? When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a person, they receive a power from the Lord that was used to redeem their people and help restore Israel. In the book of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon a great judge would give them the ability to redeem the people in amazing power to help restore God's kingdom. In 1 Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord that went on, on the kings brought peace and stability to Israel. And in the prophets, the Spirit of the Lord was on these very messengers of God to literally proclaim His words to the people. That's, that's the force of what the Spirit of the Lord would have meant. And the disciples are being told by Jesus in verse 5 that this baptism of John, which was a baptism that was preparatory, it was preparing them to meet Christ. This baptism was, was sort of heralding a coming king. This baptism is now preparing them to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when this Holy Spirit arrives for the disciples, suddenly the disciples, it clicks. Oh my goodness. We're entering into this category of heroes that they grew up hearing stories about. The judges, the great kings, the prophets. These disciples would now possess the Spirit of the Lord. When you really dwell on this, uh, there's two realities. On the one hand, the disciples should not have expected any kind of such blessing to come upon them. Why would Jesus, the great rabbi, bestow such a gift, such a power upon this lot of disciples? Uh, these are disciples that couldn't understand Jesus' parable. They were only concerned about their position or power within the kingdom of God. They're fiercely about their self-preservation, even abandoning Jesus on the cross. Why would Jesus give this kind of a gift, this kind of responsibility to this group? They aren't kings. They aren't judges. They aren't priests. They aren't prophets. These are nobodies. Why in the world would Jesus go about doing this? But on the other hand, if you're really looking carefully at your scriptures, it's actually plausible to see that disciples are actually the perfect group of people to possess the Spirit of the Lord. After all, King David was a nobody shepherd before he came into the kingship. 
The judges were often flawed individuals, and the prophets even more so. In other words, the Spirit of the Lord has always fallen upon a people undeserving of it. And that's the scandal of grace. That God would give to a people who don't fully understand Him, who are filled with sin, who break His laws and commands, and who are flawed, imperfect characters, who rebel against Him in word and deed, and He still pursues them and promises them the gift of the Spirit to bring about His kingdom. Think about the love this would require to entrust them with a gift that could change the world. And imagine giving it to someone who didn't deserve it at all. What a scandal that would be. Unless their worth is more than the sins that they've committed. Their worth is more than the lies that seemingly would lead into nothingness. Uh, There's a series on uh, HGTV uh, that's been running for the last several years called Hometown Takeover uh, that Paige and I love to watch. Um, The the premise of the show is this, uh, that there are these sort of small towns across America that are falling into complete and total disrepair. Uh, They're neglected. The residents are moving out to, to get away. There's nothing happening in these small towns. And the residents don't believe that there's anything left that their towns could provide for them. But, then the town gets chosen by HGTV to have the entire town renovated in strategic areas to help boost town centers, uh, to to support local community leaders, to renovate businesses that are in need of upgrading. And, you know, I know it's it's very manufactured and, like, you know, obviously there's very idealized stories here, but, you know, I'm a sucker. Like, what makes the show so beautiful is, is not just the stunning renovations to the city, But it's the residents themselves realizing what's possible that was always there in these dilapidated spaces. But someone comes in and gives great worth and value and gives them the ability to see what great renewal could look like. In other words, they receive, they possess something that they could never have earned, never could have gained on their own. It's only possible because someone else gives them dignity to be greater than what they already are. For the disciples of Jesus Christ, for us here today, um, there's no worthiness that we have to build the kingdom of God. But God looks at us and says, we are given a dignity and value and clothed by the Spirit of God to be his kingdom builders. And the good news of what Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is for us today is that whatever that we have suffered, whatever has plagued your past, whatever life event that has happened to you, to discourage you, to make you feel like you have nothing to give. This does not negate the fact that in Christ, we have an immense purpose to live out this kingdom expansion. So, how do the disciples build the kingdom? Once they've received the Holy Spirit, how do they build it? Uh, This is our second main thought here today, is what the disciples of Christ proclaim. Now, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, it may sound strange that the disciples ask the question that they do of Jesus in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? But um, to to defend the disciples here, it really doesn't seem so strange when you, you think about it. For them, following in the footsteps of Jesus, their rabbi is the default mode for any disciple. They, they don't want to take the lead here, in essence. 
Right? Uh, in the Talmud, which is the uh, central text of rabbinic Judaism, uh, disciples would carry the rabbi's belongings. They were obligated to protect their rabbi. They were obligated to cook food and never contradict his teaching. So even though Jesus had given them this grand promise of the Holy Spirit, um, there was nothing for them to think that they would be elevated to a different kind of work other than following their great rabbi to restore the kingdom of Israel. In fact, now that Jesus had come and the promised Messiah had arrived, it would seem that all that was left now were for all of those promises of the Old Testament to happen, that his kingdom would come to pass. So the disciples were essentially asking Jesus, hey Jesus, uh, are we there yet? Is now the time that you'll restore the kingdom to our nation of Israel? And this is where Jesus says something that would have swept the rug underneath them. Jesus essentially gives the uh, messianic, rabbinic equivalent of, we'll get there when we get there. Right? Just as an aside, um, I, I can't wait for Calvin to grow up and ask, and for him to ask the question on a road trip, you know, Father, is, is now the time when we arrive at Disneyland? And I get to say to him this verse, it is not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, because it's so true. Whatever you might be expecting the kingdom of God to look like, guess what? The Father's plan is so much better and greater than you might expect. And instead of wondering the question of when, Jesus reframes the question to get the disciples to consider how. See, once this Holy Spirit comes upon him, Jesus says they will be his witnesses. The astounding thing about this is that while Jesus has won the victory, his disciples must go build the kingdom. But it's not through the sword. It's not through political maneuvering or manipulation. It's through proclaiming Jesus with their lives as witnesses. Okay, now, uh, I don't really particularly like using Greek in a sermon. And the reason why is because the people who have translated your Bibles know more Greek in their little finger than most pastors will ever know. So you can trust what they've written here, and I don't want in any sense to shake your confidence in the Word of God. Uh, so take what I'm about to say here in the Greek with a total grain of salt here, but I am on extremely good ground, I believe, to, to say that this word witnesses in your Bible has a much different force than simply being a proclaimer of the message of the gospel. The word here used for witnesses is also the direct word used for martyr. Still a witness, so the ESV is correct in translation, but the force of hearing this word in the Greek, mar martyrus, right, invokes imagery of a very different kind of witness. This is a witness who will sacrifice their very life in order for the message of God to go forth. This word here and, and the idea that Jesus is giving his disciples this word, you will be martyrs, you will be witnesses, it changes the way that you think about what it means to proclaim the gospel, doesn't it? Instead of the position where the Holy Spirit is giving you a power to bulldoze your way through the kingdom, Jesus says, actually, the Holy Spirit will work in you in such a way that you will have to deny yourself and give up your life. The way, in other words, that the power of the Holy Spirit works in testifying and being a witness of the power of the resurrected Christ to convince people that Jesus is the only way of salvation is not 
this sort of forceful, angry, shouty preaching, but a sacrificial life that surrenders all of your rights for the sake of having Christ being known to the world. This should have powerful implications about how we think about how to proclaim the nature of the disciples' work in evangelism and our posture when we go out to others in evangelism and be martyrusis, to be witnesses to Jesus. So in other words, you are no longer a disciple that could even in any sense think of yourself as superior to non-Christians or more enlightened or better than the people that you're talking to. Rather, you are someone that is literally sacrificing your life so that others can know the source of salvation, the bread of life in Jesus Christ. Uh, contrast this with some methods of evangelism that we see in our digital age. Uh, and just as a pastor, I'm, I'm frankly appalled at uh, what some people consider evangelism to others. You know, sort of like the YouTube video, right? All caps. Atheist debates Christian and instantly regrets it, right? With some, like, theology bro yelling and dropping mics everywhere. Uh, this Christian, this sort of proud machismo attitude who looks at, down at the atheist with uncharitable quips and straw men arguments only hurts our witness because it's precisely not the witness that Christ is telling his disciples to give. Sure, it might be good for the algorithm, and it might serve as really entertaining clickbait, but the truth of the matter is, is we're not called to witness as those who posture fake strength, but rather to a posture that is gentle and lowly like our Savior. Uh, I don't know who said this argument, but it holds so true. Bad evangelism says this, I'm right, you're wrong, and I would love to tell you about it. In contrast, the disciples are given their charge from Jesus to go and proclaim him as martyrs. But in doing so, they are given the text to surrender their lives so he might be famous. So this is a reality check for all of us here today. Right? Uh, anyone who sells you a Christianity that says you can follow Jesus, you can be his disciples, but uh, you won't have to give up your comforts. Uh, you won't have to give up your lifestyle. You won't have to give up your dreams for your life. Uh, you can just live, in fact, just as you have had before without any really giving up meaningfully anything. Now, that Christianity sounds an awful lot like grace, but in reality, it's a message that demonstrates that the real God is actually you. Because God never became worth sacrificing your life for, never became the center of your world, your reality, never became what you would not only live for, but on the converse side, what you'd be willing to die for. Second Corinthians 4, 5-6 through 6, reminds us that for what we proclaim is not of ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as what? As your servants for Jesus' sake. Servants. The ultimate humility. Why? So that Christ can be witnessed in our sacrificed lives to him. Now, I don't want to get it twisted here. This isn't some sort of life chained to suffering that has no joy and no real triumph. Um, there was uh, a satirist by the name of H.L. Mencken who once criticized the Puritans, and he said, Puritanism is basically the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Right? And that, that's sometimes how we can think of our Christianity. Uh, no, Jesus, in calling us to be martyrs for the sake of the gospel, is the key to living joyfully in the Holy Spirit. Yes, 
uh, we living as witnesses will suffer great sorrow and heartache and suffering. There's no avoiding that. But you will have a peace knowing that Christ is there with you. That he is in the sorrow with you even now. For those of us who come here today with heavy burdens. You will find the kingdom that will know no end waiting for you at the end of your journey. And just because you don't know when the road trip will end doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the triumph along the way. Um, I hold a special place in my heart for those who teach, uh, for those, those teachers in the room, and especially for those who you teach young students in any kind of a classroom setting. Uh, and uh, every job is frustrating and every job holds challenges, but, but in teaching, uh, as our teachers will tell you, there is no end to the frustrations of what could come into your day and the dying to self that needs to happen in order to help someone understand something. Someone who may not even remember your name 10 years down the line. I don't remember who taught me that I before E comes after, whatever, that rule, right, whatever, right? See, I didn't even, like, really truly remember the lesson, right? <laughs> and the million other exceptions to that rule, right? Uh, but teachers have this one great moment that is greater than, you know, all the millions of ungrateful learners and lessons and frustrations. And if you're a teacher, you won't know this and you've experienced this. Uh, there's this one moment where a student will come back to you and, and will tell you, you know, um, you know, when I was younger and I was so immature and irresponsible in your class, what you taught me actually gave me a window into learning that stayed with me forever. And I'm just so grateful to you. Now, now they don't say it quite like that, but like it's this beautiful moment of teaching, right? This beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel in teaching. That in dying to self, there's a joy that you receive through the frustration. There's something beautiful in the dying, something in the witnessing, in the martyring that leads to life for others. So what does it look like for you to be a witness of Jesus today? What is the Holy Spirit convicting you as his disciple to proclaim him? And this is where we land in the sermon. Our last point here is to talk about what do disciples pursue? What do they pursue? You see, this witnessing, this proclamation, isn't just done in a vacuum. In fact, Jesus gives them specific targets of their mission to be witnesses. They will go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in this brief statement, we have a shattering of expectations of the disciples' questions. You see, they thought that the kingdom of God would only be a national Israel a land with boundaries that fit their own narrative, their own ethnic history, their own practices and traditions. And Jesus says, actually, the kingdom of God is greater than all of that. And your ministry, the lives you will live, will reach to the very corners of the earth in witnessing the good news of Jesus Christ crucified. The kingdom of God will cause you to realize that the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that the nation would be a blessing to all nations, this kingdom is actually going to be a global kingdom. This kingdom will cause you to love your enemies in Samaria, their bitter rivals, the ones that they fought religious wars with for centuries and reached them. This kingdom will cause you to fight the idols and the false gods across the world and for you to give your lives to that end. This is the magnitude of what Jesus is telling them to pursue. 
Now, it would be a mistake to think that the disciples were given you know, this sort of platitude vision of their ministry and for Jesus to not expect them to reach this goal in their lives. If that were true, the disciples wouldn't have taken their ministry as seriously as they did. And with the fervor that they all sacrificed their lives as martyrs, if they didn't believe in the promises of God would happen. You see, in the 30 short years that are covered in the book of Acts, right? we read Acts and we tend to think that this was like hundreds of years. Acts as a book happens in 30 years. Just three decades of life and ministry. Where do we find ourselves at the very end of Luke's account in the book of Acts? We see that the disciples did reach Jerusalem, their hometown. They did reach Judea, the territory that encompassed Jerusalem. They reached Samaria, where no Jew would have ever thought or dreamed to minister to, let alone called Samaritans the family of God. And at the end of the book of Acts, where does Paul find himself at the end of the book? He's in Rome, the epicenter of the world, the place where all the world would know what is happening if the gospel is effective there. If Paul could make it in Rome, he could make it anywhere. And there the gospel was proclaimed. You see, in other words, this grand vision of Acts 1-8 isn't just some mission strategy. It's the mission of the disciples in Jesus' present time. It's the very focus of what the apostles were called to do in their own lifetime. So the pursuit of the disciples was a call for them to look at each area of the world that they lived in and consider for themselves, how are we going to reach these kingdoms for the kingdom of God? What would it look like for us as a church and as Christ's disciples to do the same? Now, what is incredible and what I'm proud to say of City of Hope is that this church, um, I believe uh, Pam Seegerson has said this church is small but mighty, and she's absolutely right, right? Is that this church has a wonderful heart for global and local missions. Uh, we have missionaries in Asia that we have sent. We support missions in Europe, in Africa, in Canada. We locally support several key organizations doing the work of mercy ministry to those who are in great need. Uh, that's such an encouragement to think through as we think about the work in front of us. And yet, the question is before us. How do we reach Columbia, Howard County, our present-day Samaria, the ends of the earth in our lifetimes? We are given a task that is too monumental for us to grasp. And yet, Scripture here gives us our mission that is certain for us. So, in other words, we cannot neglect any one of these areas. We cannot go on short-term missions trips to other locations across the world with the full force of the gospel and yet neglect our neighbors. So we can't be so to the ends of the earth minded that we forget about Jerusalem and Judea. Likewise, on the opposite end, we can't simply think of ourselves as situationally located in Columbia, Maryland and think that has nothing to do with Columbia, South America and think that it's God's problem over there to deal with. No, we are called to a work of the kingdom that hits every single one of these regions. And what's even more bold to say is that this is something that Jesus expects his people to do in their lifetimes. It's not as crazy as you might think. Three decades for global reach is nothing when we think about the age and the time that we live in. Facebook is only 19 years old. YouTube is only 18. 
iPhone 16, Instagram 13, and ChatGPT, believe it or not, is just one year old. Think of the ubiquitous nature of these technologies, and if one idea can transform the world, so much more can one person in Jesus Christ. How much more can a disciple who has been filled with the Holy Spirit be a witness for Christ in such a powerful way that not even Rome, nor Russia, nor sickness, nor death, no power or principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God and nothing can stop the advance of his gospel. So church, today I want us to consider Jesus' mission to us. What does pursuing the ends of the earth mean for us today? Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you are called to create the next big thing. Rather, I'm asking, what would it look like for you to have this global perspective on where God has placed you now? How does knowing that God has given you possession of the Holy Spirit, He's called you to be a martyrus. He's called you to the world to give you greater purpose for your life that you can even begin to realize. For these disciples, their expectations of the kingdom weren't what they thought, but in their spirit-fueled ministry, their sacrificial lives led to the kingdom of God being spread to every corner of the known world. And as his people, we are reminded to do the same, to continue this mission, that the Acts of the Apostles, as this book was uh, originally called, becomes the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through his church. So we'll start the journey of understanding all the implications of that next week. But for now, let's pray together.